0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Damien Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Feuerstein, hanging out in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
1: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, weathering the pandemic in the San Francisco Bay Area.
0: It is Thursday, June 25th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, we'll discuss the
2: alarming surge of COVID 19 cases in the South and the West, particularly in states like Texas, Florida, Arizona, and California and what the outbreaks there can tell us about the coming months of this long pandemic.
1: Next, we're joined by David Barbosa of the new publication, The Wire, to talk about some new revelations in the salacious story of GlaxoSmithKline's bribery scandal in China.
0: Finally, we'll be joined by our colleague Liz Cooney, who has been reporting on the impact of COVID-19 on cancer care and clinical trials in the U.S.
1: But first, a word from our sponsor.
0: Alnylam Pharmaceuticals has led the translation
2: of the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNA interference into an innovative new class of medicines. RNAi Therapeutics treat disease differently than other types of medicines by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Our pioneering work has delivered the world's first and only approved RNAi Therapeutics, and we're just getting started. Learn more about how our science is changing the way medicine treats disease. At alnylam.com dot com slash stat. That's a l n y l a m. dot com forward slash stat.
1: The U.S. is seeing a dangerous increase in coronavirus cases in the South and West that could have implications for the entire country, especially as more young people are becoming infected. As America pushes- So the past few days have brought some alarming news about surging case counts in a number of states.
0: California, Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, and South Carolina all reported record high numbers of new COVID-19 cases on Wednesday, contributing to a new high of nearly 39,000 new cases added nationwide. That same day. In Texas, the number
2: of hospitalizations has risen so fast that Houston's largest hospital projected it would exceed ICU capacity as soon as Thursday. And a children's hospital in Houston recently started admitting adult patients with COVID 19.
0: In Florida, hospitalizations are rising as well, so fast that a Miami hospital reported on Tuesday that it had reached full capacity.
1: Arizona, meanwhile, set a single-day record for COVID-19 hospitalizations on Tuesday. And that was the same day that President Trump visited the state for a rally in a packed church in Phoenix.
0: So this all seems... Pretty concerning. What exactly are we seeing here? Is this a second wave, a second spike within the first wave, or, or something else?
2: Yeah, you know this is really concerning, Damien. You know to try to make sense of all of this, you know I keep going back to a really useful story uh, that our colleague Sharon Begley published at the beginning of May. And, you know, that story mapped out three potential futures for the pandemic. And those were, you know, recurring small outbreaks, a monster wave, or a persistent crisis.
1: So far, it kind of seems like we're seeing elements of several of these futures play out in a localized way in different regions of the United States. You know, it's kind of a persistent crisis with outbreaks popping up in different spots around America.
2: So I think the obvious explanation is the reopening. You know, these surges, of course, come in the weeks after these and other states started reopening their economies. Uh, You know, it's really hard to say why these states in particular, rather than all of the other states reopening around the same time, are being hit right now.
1: Yeah, I remember there was a period in March and April when we were seeing those alarming photos of packed Florida beaches, and we were bracing for the caseload in Florida to blow up sort of like what was happening in New York and New Jersey at the time. And yet, thankfully, somehow that didn't happen. And for some reason, during the lockdown, states like Florida were spared. And it seemed like maybe they were doing something right. But I think what's becoming clear now is that the virus just hadn't seeded there yet. It just needed more time.
0: So everything kind of gets framed in political terms, at least on cable news. And and one narrative I've been hearing a lot is that while we saw COVID-19 hit a number of blue states particularly hard this spring, we're now seeing red states feel the brunt of the virus. Does that notion hold water?
2: I mean, it's probably... You know, like all, like all things on cable news, uh, is it an oversimplification? You know, a lot of the states being hit right now are I would call them more purple than red. You know, and then look at California, which you know is deep blue, right? It actually fared quite well in the early weeks of the outbreak, but it's also in particularly bad shape uh, right now with LA County in particular driving the spike in cases and hospitalizations.
1: So the only piece of good news lately seems to be that COVID nineteen deaths continue to mostly plateau or decline, depending on where in the United States you're looking. What do we think is going on there?
0: That's really hard to say. And there's certainly been signs that the demographics of exactly who's getting sick are shifting, which is say more young people are getting sick as they venture out to bars or or partake in whatever they're allowed to do as their states reopen. And as we know, young people are less likely to die from the virus than older people in general. And so that could be part of why, you know, the, the death rates and the infection rates seem disparate. But there could also just be a lag at play here. And it could be that we'll start to see deaths rise in the next few days and weeks as the people getting infected now uh, decline in health. So
2: one very strange thing about this current moment in the pandemic is that it seems like the level of alarm is waning even as the situation gets worse. You know, no matter how you look at it, there's more spread of the virus in most communities in America now compared to March when everyone was completely terrified and staying home. So, you know, how big of a factor do you think is COVID fatigue?
1: Yeah, I think it's a huge factor. I think people can't stay terrified and alarmed for such a long period of time and, and modify their behavior accordingly. At the same time, though, I think the kind of extreme lockdown was never meant to be a permanent solution uh, during the pandemic. You know, we, we locked down as we did in, in March and April so that we could figure out how to deal with this no- novel coronavirus to understand better how it spread and, and how we can can mitigate that spread. Um, And so I think we're going to have to find a new way of containing it because it's hard to imagine going back to the lockdowns of of March and April.
2: And I think, you know, look, masks have to be part of this discussion as well. I think it's no coincidence that the places you're seeing hotspots today in those states are states where there's been a pretty significant resistance to wearing masks in public.
0: The other thing this has all brought to light to me in many ways is the way we talk about states is often as though they are set apart from one another and people don't travel between them. You know, I follow the news in New Mexico where I'm from, which is a state that largely complied with, um, you know, kind of CDC directives and saw their case counts go down, and has recently begun to reopen and is considered something of a success story, at least in that region. Meanwhile, it's surrounded by Texas and Arizona, which have done diametrically opposed things with respect to containment. And people from I, I saw a photograph in the Santa Fe, New Mexican the other day of a bunch of unmasked Texan tourists hanging out in Santa Fe Plaza. And I think sometimes we forget when we talk about states that, you know, this is an interconnected country where people are free to travel. And so even if you quote, unquote, quote, do things right, you are still kind of at the whim of your neighbors within our nation. Back in 2013, the world learned about a sweeping bribery scandal involving GlaxoSmithKline in China. The company had spent years systematically bribing doctors with cash, vacations, and sexual favors in exchange for prescribing its drugs. The whole thing appeared to come to a close in 2014 when
2: GSK paid a $500 million fine, saw some of its executives sentenced to
0: prison, and promised to clean up its business in China. But the story doesn't end there. This all came to light because of a whistleblower, a person GSK never managed to find. And that whistleblower is still waiting for justice.
2: We're joined now by David Barboza, co-founder of the new publication The Wire China, who has been in contact with the GSK whistleblower for years and wrote a story about the situation this week. David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure, great to be here.
0: So maybe before we get into the story of the whistleblower, can you tell us a little bit more about GSK's bribery scheme in China? We've seen bribery settlements from drug makers like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, but what made this GSK scandal different?
3: Really the scale of it. I mean, I guess not only the scale of the bribery, but the nature of it, the bribery, the sexual favors, and the size of the fine, I don't think there was a global company that had ever been fined $100 million, let alone $500 million. So when the Chinese government fined GSK and raided their offices in 2013, it was pretty stunning. And then by the way, almost every other major European drug maker ran into trouble in China. And there were other uh, settlements with the SEC for those some of those drug makers too. So this was a pretty major scandal in China.
2: So as we said, you've been in contact with the whistleblower uh, who brought this to the attention of the authorities. When did he or she first start raising concerns and what happened?
3: The person started really in 2010 to uh, write to regulators and then the SEC and then the DOJ to start to reveal what was going on inside of GSK. And you may know that GSK had lots of regulatory problems in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, I think around 2010, 11, 12, and had other settlements and then all of a sudden this person inside of GSK is writing these letters, not only telling the U.S. about it, but also telling Chinese regulators in very long, detailed letters. I mean, these are like sometimes almost like 20 page memos with names addresses, details that are pretty remarkable.
0: And so interestingly, while all of this is happening, GSK conducted an internal investigation to find the source of the leak and ended up firing an employee that management suspected to be responsible, but they apparently had the wrong person. So how did you get in contact with the real whistleblower?
3: First, GSK, I believe, is alerted that there is a whistleblower and maybe even sees some of the letters and fires a woman in 2012 that they believe is the whistleblower. And I know that from seeing some of the GSK documents later on. The real whistleblower ends up going to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, GSK has already fired a Chinese woman, and they believe this is the writer of these letters and emails that is really kind of threatening the, the China staff. And then they probably think the, the whole situation is, is done with So then this is December of 2012 and you fast forward to March of 2013, the whistleblower reemerges and this new person or this original person goes to the wall street journal with the letters and the claims and the wall street journal publishes a big story and GSK's response is we've done a four month investigation. We've looked into all these claims. We know all about these letters uh, before and we found basically nothing wrong. It was completely a, a kind of a hoax. And so we're in the clear. So that, that takes you up to sort of June of 2013. Um, for a long time, for, for me and everyone else, we all believed that it was the woman that they fired. It was this woman, Vivian Sure, because... The company had let it kind of leak out. Several people had told journalists it was Vivian Schur. And then there were actual GSK documents that said the real whistleblower. So we believe they must have done a serious investigation and found some evidence that Vivian Schur wrote those letters. It took me a long time to figure out and realize that she did not.
2: So what was the fallout? After GSK's behavior was made public,
3: I guess the fallout was pretty bad in China. First of all, because within days of the raids on GSK's offices in in Shanghai, but also their offices in other cities in China, there were televised confessions. Um, it's kind of a shocking thing to see, but it's it's very much a China thing. Is the Chinese government likes to put people on the main propaganda station confessing to crimes. And so they had, I think maybe within a day of the government saying GSK has been raided for bribery and corruption. GSK, I think came out and denied it. And then maybe the day, a day later or two days later, there it's top executives in China on TV confessing and saying, yes, this is how the bribery scandal worked. So obviously GSK had to reverse itself. This was like terrible to see your own executives admitting, maybe under pressure, of course, from the Chinese government, that they were involved in a massive bribery and sexual favors scandal. And then the government starts raiding other companies and calling them in. So this was a pretty dramatic period for multinational companies operating in China.
2: So David, there's a through line in your story where basically the whistleblower seems to do the right thing by reporting crimes to authorities, but nothing actually changes until the press gets involved. Does the GSK case have like any damning implications for how the world polices corporate crime?
3: I think so. I've dealt with a lot of whistleblowers actually over the year. And This is not unusual that a company uh, with a lot at stake can keep in mind at the time that this whistleblower is writing to regulators, GSK is settling one of the biggest fines in the history of the US for, I think, marketing practices and promising never to let this happen again. When someone comes out and threatens that, and particularly keep in mind you know, maybe there were people that didn't believe it was true, but the company gets really scared. This is China. If you lived in China, worked in China, you would know that it is not unusual in sales channels. There's lots of bribery, so they probably, like many companies, got really nervous and tried to stop the whistleblower. Um, so I think the the lesson is really for us. We see this happen again and again that. Yes, companies want to do the right thing, but when something really scary happens and it involves like almost destroying your entire operation in China, they often have reactions that are kind of like natural human reactions, which is like, Wait, who is that whistleblower? Stop that person. It must be a lie. The bigger lesson, at least for me, is it's pretty hard if you're in a country that this is the way business is done. And in many ways, this whistleblower really like totally destroyed the China. I mean, the China operation was like executives were sent, you know, given prison terms and kicked out of the country and fined $500 million. GSK ended up firing lots of salespeople saying that they actually were doing bribery. And then the salespeople wanted to sue GSK saying, you actually told us to do bribery. So it was a messy situation.
0: Well, you can read more of David's work and find a lot more reporting on business in China at wirechina.com. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Cancer is
2: not waiting for COVID-19 to go away. Yet like so many aspects of our daily lives, COVID-19 has significantly disrupted the treatment of people with cancer. The repercussions of delayed diagnoses, mistreatments, or suspended clinical trials has cancer experts worried.
1: So let's look at a model built by the National Cancer Institute looking at breast cancer and colorectal cancer. That model predicts there will be 10,000 excess deaths in the United States over the next 10 years because of pandemic-related delays in diagnosing and treating these tumors. That's about a 1% increase over the number of expected deaths during that time span. And the model assumes cancer care depressed by the coronavirus rebounds after six months.
0: Also from the NCI comes a concerning statistic about patient participation in mid- and late-stage cancer trials. At the end of March, the number of new patients entering such trials plunged by nearly 50%. And by June, that drop-off had moderated, but enrollment was still down about 30%.
1: So our STAT colleague, Liz Cooney, has been spending time talking to cancer physicians, patients, and government officials about COVID-19's impact and what's being done to ameliorate it. She joins us to discuss. Liz, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me.
2: So Liz, you uh, spoke recently with Ned Sharpless. Uh, He's the director of the National Cancer Institute. So what worries him the most about COVID-19's impact on cancer care?
4: Sharpless's biggest concern is the cancer you don't know you have because you didn't get your regular screening mammogram or colonoscopy. And for cancers that don't have screening tests and might progress more quickly than others, he mentioned lung cancer, not getting regular medical care where you might report symptoms can mean a delay in diagnosis that's life-threatening. So Sharpless
0: supported the postponement of procedures and deferring care in the early days of the pandemic. But he's now urging hospitals to reopen for cancer care. Is that because he believes we have the coronavirus under control or because further delays for cancer patients would bring on a different public health crisis?
4: Sharpless told me while we don't have the coronavirus under control, we have learned enough about how to handle it that both COVID 19 and cancer patients can be treated at the same time. He said, and I'm quoting here, we can open hospitals and worry about a second wave. I think. It's possible to do both, end quote. This was before the recent surge in Texas, Arizona, and Florida we've all been talking about. I'd like to ask him that question again today.
2: So Liz, you recently did some reporting from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute here in Boston. How have physicians and staff there been dealing with COVID-19?
4: So beyond the strict screening and social distancing reminders, there were two striking things I saw. Uh, One was what a no-visitor policy really looks like in the waiting room, as in no friends or family sitting with the patient. But the other one was how streamlined the visit I saw was from screening to getting lab work to seeing the doctor to getting an infusion. Very few delays between all these stops for the patient I was with. And that's intentional, designed by the medical staff to keep the patients exposed to other people for as short a time as possible, which patients, especially if they're sitting by themselves, seem to really appreciate.
1: So Liz, how about clinical trials? What's changed uh, during the COVID-19 era in how they're carried out?
4: So the National Cancer Institute did modify some clinical trial Protocols, So that meant getting patient consent over the phone instead of having them come in to sign a form. Or spacing out chemotherapy treatments from every week to once every three weeks, delivering an oral pill to the patient's home so they didn't have to come in to get an IV version of chemo. Or it meant skipping some tissue biopsies altogether so the patients wouldn't have to come to the hospitals, and that would keep hospital ORs clear for COVID patients. So more patients are coming in for care now, in part because it's time for those visits that were postponed or regimens that were stretched out. It's also in part because, at least in the places where I was talking to people COVID cases were falling.
0: So somewhat on that topic, doctors are turning to telemedicine and and other technologies more and more to care for cancer patients during the pandemic. Based on your reporting, do you think that these are technologies that will remain in place when or, God forbid, if the pandemic
4: ends? Oh, definitely. Doctors at Dana-Farber in Boston, Ohio State, in Columbus, and Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York all said telemedicine is here to stay. And Sloan Kettering, is thinking about virtual clinical trials in the future that might depend on telemedicine, maybe using wearables to track patients. And it just makes sense to limit how often a cancer patient has to come in. Um, There was a downside I heard from one Dana Farmer doctor that while doctors and nurses can't hold a patient's hand over video, they do get a glimpse and can see where and how the patient lives in ways they only imagined before.
2: Liz, thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
0: Thank you to Hyacinth Tempinado and Teresa Gaffney who produced this week's episode.
2: Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer and Rick Burke is our executive producer.
1: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how your state is handling this surge in coronavirus cases. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
0: And as always, if you like what we do, please, of course, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.